If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! Welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar. Today, we're taking on the topic of childhood cancer, specifically the research being done by Nemours and its many partners in academia, public health, and the private sector. Joining me to discuss all of this and a bit about himself as well is Dr. Edward Anders Kolb, better known as Andy. Dr. Kolb is the Director of Blood and Bone Marrow Transplantation in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Nemours Children's Hospital in Delaware, and his interest in medicine, like that of many of his peers, began in his own youth. I think I knew I wanted to go into medicine early in school, probably in junior high school or high school. It was primarily because I was good at science and I had some family members who pushed me towards medicine. And then once I dipped my toe in, I I realized that I enjoyed it. And why hematology oncology? Why this particular specialty? Yeah, I get asked why oncology, hematology, oncology a lot. I think the first question I answer is why pediatrics? For me, taking care of children is just the greatest privilege and and great fun at, at the same time. I often say I do it primarily because I don't like adults very much, but it's really, it's really because I just love kids. I love how they respond to challenges, how they respond to illnesses, um, and how inspiring those responses are and, and how inspiring their, their strength is and resilience. As far as hematology oncology, I think among the pediatric subspecialties, it is a quite unique in its focus on research and the incorporation of cutting edge information almost daily into clinical practice. We need to be very good at understanding and developing clinical research. We need to be very good at interpreting results so that we can incorporate them into a treatment planning for children. And we need to do all of that in real time. The amount of information that we need to process to take care of patients is, is really phenomenal. And um, we have a great team of people that that help us do this. More on that team in just a bit. But first, let's talk about the myriad research projects that Dr. Kolb and his colleagues have taken on, projects that are aimed at improving treatments and outcomes for children diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Kolb. In pediatric oncology, we always say that research is our standard of care, right? That every patient that walks through the center is a research subject. In fact, We enroll frequently more than 100% of our kids on clinical trials because we enroll many kids on multiple different studies. And to me, this means that every Nemours associate is a clinical researcher. Whether they know it or not, they are contributing to the care of a research subject, also a patient that we know and love. And we approach this with a multidisciplinary, comprehensive team that is focused not on just providing the most outstanding 
care that we can, but learning as much as we can from every patient. Childhood cancers are a series of rare diseases, a cluster of rare diseases. And to let a child with cancer progress through our center without learning something from that child, I think does a great disservice to the next child that that comes through the door. So we really have built uh, a program that is able to collect analyze and share key information on treatment planning and results and um, for every child that we see. You know, Moore's in, in general is not one of the larger cancer programs in the country, at least not thought of that way, but we are funded by the National Cancer Institute as a NCI community oncology research program. This is similar to the Comprehensive Cancer Program grants, except um, is for programs that are providing innovative cancer care in a community setting. And that describes all three of our hospitals, as well as um, collaborators in Pensacola and Fort Lauderdale. We're actually second in the country in enrollment on NCI-funded clinical trials. We enroll more kids than any other program in the country except for one. And to me, that that's one of the things of, of which I'm most proud, that we are making sure that we have the infrastructure for clinical care, for education, for advanced research uh, methods and data collection to ensure that all patients that come to any one of our sites have access to the most innovative clinical trials available. And again, that that goes back to, to where I started, that research is the standard of care for children with cancer. It's not just a way to learn, but sometimes it's the only way that a child will have access to an innovative or life-saving therapy is through enrollment on a clinical trial. Clinical trials in cancer care, I think, are are unique for a couple reasons. You know, one, when, when I was growing up in this profession, we often repurposed commercially available drugs that were developed for adult malignancies and figured out how to use them in children. And though we were pretty good at that, and we were pretty good at, at finding safe and effective combinations of therapies for children with cancer, it wasn't long uh, as an oncologist before I realized that we were banging our heads against the ceiling, that we could not get any more mileage out of these drugs in terms of outcomes and survival. And then for some malignancies, my research focus is in acute myeloid leukemia, we actually we're banging our heads against the toxicity ceiling that we were giving maximally toxic doses of chemotherapy to kids because nothing else worked. Um, and many of those patients also required a, a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. So in the last five to eight years, we have seen uh, a, a real increase in the number of targeted therapies that are available for children with cancer. And many of these targeted therapies, whether they're a cellular therapy like a CAR T-cell, an antibody-based therapy, or even some of the more targeted therapies that can be delivered by mouth and oral chemotherapy that, that can be delivered at home. Many of these therapies are very, very expensive, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So if not approved by the FDA, we can't just prescribe it. We can't just prescribe um, a therapy anymore that was developed for adults with the expectation that we can use it in kids because payers aren't going to pay for it without 
uh, a clinical trial. Payers aren't going to pay for it just because it worked in adults. So with these new therapies, we need to be able to conduct clinical trials across a wide range of therapy types. Again, cellular therapies, immunotherapies, antibody-based immunotherapies, or conventional cytotoxic drugs. And, and we need to be able to do this because it's the only way that children will get access to these drugs, access both in the short run through the clinical trial and then in the long run through the process of getting FDA approval for that therapy. For us in our institution, we think it's very important to be at the front of the line when drug companies and sponsors are looking for institutions that can participate in their trials. And the only way to be at the front of the line is to put kids on study and do a good job taking care of them. And that's that's where we have focused our, our work. It's work that is by no means limited to Nemours. There are, in fact, many internal and external partners moving this research forward for children across the nation and across the world. This is work that we have been doing in collaboration with investigators across the country, across the world, really looking for new targets for children with AML, acute myeloid leukemia, and what we've suspected for a long time, but really consolidated our our understanding of it just in the past five years or so, is that children don't get adult AML. And I know that sounds like a very obvious statement. But AML is most common in adults and increases in frequency with age. So it's really what I would um, categorize as a, as a wear and tear type cancer. You don't get it because you've been exposed to the sun or necessarily because you've been smoking or any of the other usual risk factors that we see in, in certain cancer types. It actually happens in a, in a tissue that's relatively protected from the environment in our bone marrow, one of the common mechanisms for getting AML is just the acquisition of mutations over time. There are several common mutations that are seen in adult patients with AML, older adult patients with AML, that we just don't see in kids. You know, it could represent 30 to 40% of adults with AML, and it's less than 1% of, of children with AML, less than 2% of children with AML. So, The drugs that are being developed in AML are being developed to attack the mutational events that are common in older adults, and they're really not going to be effective in the vast majority of of children. The events that cause childhood AML are different. The mutations are different. They're well-described now, but, but they're significantly different. And for a lot of different reasons, they are harder to target just because you have a mutation that results in a messed up gene and a messed up protein doesn't mean it's easy to to target. So what collaborators have done is to profile leukemia cells from children and try to figure out those genes, those proteins that are expressed at a higher level that make those leukemia cells different from normal bone marrow cells, and in many cases make those leukemia cells different from adults with AML or adult AML. And we have uh, then been able to work with collaborators to identify uh, new antibodies that can target these novel targets. And having the ability to, one, identify the target through complex chemistry and computational methods, 
to create an antibody that will go after that target. So this is created in the lab from scratch and then developed into an antibody that can be used as a therapy and then test that antibody in a preclinical setting in such a way that it could ultimately lead to development of a new therapy that would be used in kids. That is a incredibly complex process that takes uh, collaboration with multiple different labs. But for the first time, we're starting to see that this is a effective strategy. We can't rely on success in adult AML to show us the way in childhood AML. You know, the largest funder of cancer research in the country is still the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry is going to go after the the large market items, which include adults, not children with AML. So we feel in the academic community that we kind of have to take this on ourselves, that it's, it's our responsibility to identify the targets. It's our responsibility to demonstrate feasibility of killing cells by manipulating those targets. And it's our responsibility to show drug companies that there is a feasible path forward to new therapy development in in children. We are doing our best with the resources that we have, but we've got great partners in doing this. Um, American Cancer Society, St. Baldrick's recently uh, funded a, a grant allowing us to develop clinical assays for some of these high-value targets. Uh, we have a significant investment from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to develop the global infrastructure to conduct clinical trials in rare diseases and to partner more effectively with um, with pharmaceutical companies for the development of new agents in in children. And we have funded infrastructure by the National Cancer Institute, particularly the Children's Oncology Group, that allows us to, as efficiently as possible, conduct research in rare diseases in hundreds of institutions across North America, Australia, and New Zealand. Is it ever frustrating for you in the research world, the academic world? Yeah, you know, progress is slow and it is frustrating. It is hard to explain the inefficiencies and and the delays to patients and families who want answers yesterday. And I always underestimate the amount of time it's going to take to develop a concept or a clinical trial. And you know, that that is it's it's frustrating, but I think to do it right, it has to be hard. There are a lot of steps in the process to make sure that we're testing the right drugs and the right kids and that we're doing it safely. And the resources at our disposal are limited. So oftentimes we need to develop multiple different partnerships um, to get things done. And that is multiple different reviews, multiple different opinions we need to incorporate. But it is just the the nature of, of where we are right now. You know, we are seeing a shift in childhood cancer research due to the Race for Cures Act that was passed last year. And we're seeing that pharmaceutical partners are are coming to us earlier in the development of new agents. And that's wonderful because that's where great drugs and great funding reside. But at the same time, in the academic community, you know, in many instances, we, we weren't ready for this. We, you know, we're not, we're not ready to do in, in clinical trials that will meet regulatory endpoints. We're 
We're really good at doing clinical trials that will result in a publication. We're not really good at doing clinical trials that will result in the regulatory approval for new agents in the United States and Europe. And so that's that's what we're working on now is building the infrastructure that allows us to do that. And that's where Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has really provided critical support. Do you still see patients? I do, not as much as I would like. I look forward to one day getting back to to seeing patients. Uh, This work does take up a lot of time. And thankfully, I have um, most outstanding colleagues here, just a a group of, of wonderful clinicians. And I think when I do see patients, they look at me as just being in the way more than anything now. But it is it is where the, the inspiration and, and joy in this job resides. People ask me, how do I do this job? And I think, gosh, I have the best job in the world to see a, a family, to be able to interact with and help a family, hopefully help a family when they're in crisis is really a tremendous privilege to be invited in to care for their child is really an honor that I think all of us take very seriously and and take great pride in as well. I have had um, a few patients who have left an indelible mark. I think of one uh, young woman. She had a very rare subset of uh, blood cancer. She was diagnosed as a preteen and it's something we see in older adults, but she was always advanced for her years. That's uh, her excuse. And uh, she went through the ringer. She had lots of toxic therapy, lots of side effects from those therapies, multiple surgeries, including open heart surgery for, for a complication when she was, you know, done therapy for several years. She has emerged at every step, just joyful, faithful, and extraordinary. Yeah. What do you think it is about this young woman that helped her maintain that joy and that faith? I think family. She's got wonderful family, wonderful siblings, including her sister, who was a bone marrow donor for her, and um, wonderful parents. And I don't think that is uh, exclusively what, what's required, but I think in her case, her family was was key to her resilience. I think for other kids, it's learned resilience. You know, unfortunately, once you get hit with that initial shock and and diagnosis, the punches just keep coming. We try to support patients and families as much as we can through treatment. But despite that support, they get knocked around pretty bad and they develop a, a resilience and an attitude and a fight that I don't think any of us would imagine we have in us um, until faced with such a situation. Tell me about your colleagues, your team. Who do you look to? Who do you depend upon? Who really goes over and above on the team? Oh, gosh, they all do. Um, I think the phenotype of, of anybody involved in childhood cancer research is that of a dedicated clinician. And we have the most wonderful group of, of nurses and nurse practitioners, physicians, therapists, um, psychologists, genetic counselors. I mean, it, there is no single person in that group that rises above the rest because they're all just outstanding and will do anything for these patients and, and families. I, I will say, uh, hopefully not unfairly, but highlight somebody our practice changed demonstrably and, and profoundly when we hired Laura Baker, who's our genetic counselor. 
and the genetics of childhood cancer, the genetics of both the host and the cancer cell is complex and often difficult to decipher. And having a expert in cancer predisposition and cancer-causing events and the testing required to figure all that out has been transformative for our center and I think for many centers. Um, And also having the ability or having a person who is trained to communicate all this information to physicians, nurses, laboratory personnel, as well as patients and families has really been a great advance for, for us. It helps us to understand potentially targetable agents. What we and other programs have observed is when you start asking questions of the patient's genome, you start finding answers you didn't expect. And we see that you know somewhere between 10 to 15% of our patients have a mutation in their germline, in every cell in their body that predisposes them to cancer. So we used to think that um, childhood cancer was a rare event and an unfortunate, unlucky event, but very few of these were because of a, a, of a genetic predisposition towards cancer. Now we know that that's not true. It may be one to two in 10 patients have a genetic predisposition. And in some instances, that may impact how we take care of them later in life, how we advise the, the parents for their own testing and their own surveillance, and for that of other offspring of other children in the family. So it really is where it's at in terms of understanding the context in which the, the cancer occurs. So there, again, for you know genetics, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the host genetics, which is the risk for developing that cancer or other cancers. And then we're talking about the cancer genetics, which often refer to the mutations that drive that cancer cell to form. Those mutations may only exist in the cancer cell. They may just be a mistake limited to that cancer cell or a mutation limited to that cancer cell, but it can have huge implications on treatment and and prognosis. So we need to make sure we have all that information and and that we're able to synthesize that information to inform treatment and inform families of, of risks. Are we better at treating childhood cancer than they were than we were, say, twenty years ago, thirty years ago? You know, in many childhood cancer types, we have made tremendous progress over the last twenty, thirty years. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia is often highlighted as a tremendous success for childhood cancer research. That uh, we have been able, in the last forty to fifty years been able to improve survival rates from less than 10% to, for some subsets, nearly 95, 98, 99%. And that we have really, in the last few years, for some kids with ALL, focused on strategies of therapy reduction, trying to reduce the amount of chemo needed to cure the, the, the cancer. For other childhood cancers, including some subsets of kids with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but especially all kids with acute myeloid leukemia and and other cancer types, we're not doing that much better. We have introduced in acute myeloid leukemia or AML, we've introduced very few new agents over the past 20 to 30 years. And we're able to cure about 70% of kids that are diagnosed, but we do that again with maximally toxic therapy. Our current treatment regimen for kids with AML includes a a bone marrow transplant for about 40% of kids. So to be cured, kids need at least one transplant, often two, uh, to get to that point. So we have not in AML 
started thinking about therapy reduction. We have only thought about therapy intensification. And some of the greatest improvement that we've seen in survival rates in children with AML isn't because of new anti-cancer therapies. It's because of new supportive care measures, new ways to prevent life-threatening infections, new ways to prevent life-threatening toxicities, new ways to support kids through this uh, gauntlet of, of maximally toxic uh, uh, therapy. And that's been the last 10 years worth of research is improving outcomes through improving supportive care measures, improving transplant outcomes. For the next 10 years, we really need to focus on finding more effective drugs so that we can reduce the toxicity associated with the standard therapy that these kids need. Dr. Andy Kolb is the Director of Blood and Bone Marrow Transplantation in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Nemours Children's Hospital in Delaware. Putting the spotlight on you, the Nemours Associate, is what we do week after week here on the Champions for Children podcast, and this is your open invitation to let everyone hear your Nemours story. One more time. Putting the spotlight on you, the Nemours Associate, it's what we do week after week here on the Nemours Champions for Children podcast, and this is your open invitation to let everyone hear your story. We record virtually and at your convenience. Getting on the podcast is easy. All you have to do is send us an email, podcast at namours.org. That's podcast at namours.org. Our production team this week includes Peter Adebi and Deborah Griffin. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turners Falls, Massachusetts. The podcast is available on Nemoorsnet and the Nemours Now app, along with your favorite podcast app and your smart speaker. Please do subscribe and rate the podcast. On behalf of Dr. Andy Kolb, I'm Carol Vassar, and we thank you for listening to this edition of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, please stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children and families we serve.